Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Trip Podcast. Health begins in the gut. Today, we're going to be talking about all things related to gut health. If you're a gardener, then you know that healthy soil is the foundation to growing healthy plants. Think of your microbiome the same way. It is the foundation from which your overall health will grow. The microbiome is a community of microorganisms, including fungi, bacteria, and viruses that exist in our digestive tract, our skin, our mouth, and if you're a woman, your vagina. These microorganisms change in response to a host of environmental factors, such as exercise, diet, medication, toxins, and other exposures. I would say that over 90% of the people that I work with experience some level of GI distress. Initially, they may come to me for weight loss or hair loss, low energy, low libido, or maybe even a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease, but lo and behold, it always circles back to their gut health. When our gut is inflamed due to chronic stress, autoimmune diseases, poor diet, food sensitivities, and taking medications, especially antibiotics, we experience negative health consequences down the road. Health consequences could look like skin disorders such as acne or psoriasis, chronic fatigue, migraines, brain fog, weight gain, mood disorders, and acid reflux. Some negative health conditions not talked about as much when it comes to gut health are erectile dysfunction, hair loss, and asthma. Think about it. If our gut is inflamed and we are eating an optimal diet full of bioavailable nutrients, our gut cannot properly digest, break down, and absorb the nutrients. If we don't absorb and utilize the nutrients, we can't make ATP, which is our energy currency, inside of our cells. How is our body supposed to perform all the biochemical functions and reactions necessary to sustain optimal life if we don't have enough energy? Our body's job is to keep us in a state of homeostasis, and when it's not, certain decisions have to be made. We don't need hair to survive, and growing hair requires nutrients and energy. A healthy gut is imperative to good health, and most people have no idea how to make that happen for themselves. Our microbiome directs how we look, feel, and think. My guest today is going to share his expertise on all things related to the microbiome. Afif Ghanoum is co-founder of the first total microbiome company, Biome Health, where he has commercialized consumer probiotics and microbiome testing kits that target the dual role that fungi and bacteria play in the digestive tract. He co-founded Biome with his father, Dr. Mahmoud Ghanoum, who is one of the world's leading minds in medical mycology. A biotechnical attorney by training, Afif has turned his biotechnical innovations into consumer products that have sold in more than 27,000 retail locations in the United States alone. He has also licensed technology to a global pharmaceutical company that is now sold in more than 100,000 retail locations. A short medical disclaimer, disclaimer before we begin, by listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or for making any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So let's deep dive into gut health with Afif. Welcome, Afif. Thank you for joining me on the Health Trip Podcast today. So good to have you here. Thanks for having me. I am thrilled to have you here to talk about gut health because I would say 90% of the people that I coach come to me for all different reasons, except for gut health issues, but it always circles back to gut health, right? Right. Yeah. So I wanted to start off with you just sharing a little bit of information about how you and your father started Biome Health. Yeah, for sure. So I'm a biotech attorney by background. And for the last you know dozen years, I, I've been helping take his uh, science in his area of research and create consumer health products. So we first did it uh, in the oral care space, you know, in the early 2010s and, uh, you know, did products in oral antiseptics, dry mouth. Why? Because those are areas that are really affected by, you know, germs in the oral cavity. So 
his whole research career has really been around how bacteria and fungi interact in our health and wellness, both um, you know, probiotically, but also pathogenically, right? So sometimes we're, we've been trying to kill germs, sometimes we're, we're trying to encourage them. So uh, in 2016, he did a really landmark paper for the NIH, a clinical trial showing that bacteria and fungi not only existed in the GI, but they were actually working together. And by working together, instead of creating very thin biofilms, in the gut, the, the bacterial fungal biofilms were incredibly thick and viscous, and they caused a lot of issues for Crohn's patients, but turns out they actually cause um, all sorts of digestive issues. So I saw that, and I thought, that's kind of interesting. I had never really heard of fungi's role in gut health. And when I, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur, you start to look and say, okay, is there, you know, is this kind of a need? And when we looked around, no one was really looking at that. So we thought, okay, that's kind of interesting. And um, when we then obviously though, you wanna make sure you could actually do something about it. So we did something called correlation analysis and we started looking for probiotic organisms, enzymes, other ingredients that could actually break down these biofilms. And we found uh, actually four organisms in a enzyme that in combination were really good at breaking down those biofilms. So that was the basis of biome. And so we launched first with our own probiotic, but over time we've actually launched um, into you know a number of different ingredients that we don't only do ourselves, but we actually supply to other companies as well. The other thing we did though, was that um, when my dad's paper came out, people all over the world who either dealt with Crohn's or they had family that had Crohn's reached out to my dad and asked, you know, you did all this testing in this clinical trial, could you test me or could we, you test my you know child? And one woman in particular really uh, upset my dad, she had, I think she was in Sweden. It was Sweden or, or Switzerland, but she had two sons who were basically withering away from Crohn's. And she was, you know, really trying to get my dad to test them. And my dad was just not set up to do individual testing. And I thought, you know, it's kind of weird. He's doing this NIH grade science, but this poor lady can't access it. You know, it's not really right. for that, you know? And so and even if you test it, there's so much data, it's hard to, you know, it's it's really hard to parse through it, especially if you don't have a background in it, you know? So what we did is I um, worked with Case Western School of Medicine, where his lab is till this day. And we basically consumerized the, the microbiome testing they were doing, testing not just bacteria, but the fungi in the gut. And, you know, a lot of times people say, well, is fungi really a big deal in the body? And, um, you know, the reality is, many people are actually aware of it. They're just, they just don't realize it. So for example, with women, a lot of women will see that when they take an antibiotic, mm -hmm. they actually develop a yeast infection. Why? Because when you remove bacteria, it allows fungi to overgrow and, and you know, obviously impacts the vaginal microbiome. Same with, you know, babies, when you get oral thrush, that's candida, mm -hmm. that's a fungi. Why? Because your immune system, if it goes a little bit out of whack, it allows organisms to you know, grow out of, out of whack, but not just bacterially, fungally as well. And when you see a physical fungi like Candida tropicalis in the gut, it's literally 10X the size of bacteria. So there are numerically less fungi in the gut, but it's like Gulliver's travels. Like the mm. fungi is just you know, exponentially bigger than bacteria when you look at size. So it's just very interesting. My dad got his PhD in the seventies looking at Canada and really has been beating this drum since then, uh, you know, since he's been funded by the NIH since, you know, the early nineties when he was doing a lot of HIV research, really just saying like, listen, you really have to look at fungi's role in our health and wellness. And now not only in the microbiome is it starting to catch up, but, you know, literally Wall Street Journal had an article uh, last week about fungal disease and the uh, with the fact that our bodies are getting cooler, it's allowing fungi to develop more rapidly. Um, and even, you know, the microbiome of fungi being tied to different cancers, it, it's just a really interesting time to be in the space. So that's a little bit of a long-winded answer to like, how did we get into biome and, and working right. together? But uh, yeah, it's, it's really just uh, been sort of my dad in academic science and me on the biotech uh, legal side, just, you know, commercializing it. So you mentioned a few terms that my listeners may have not ever heard of before. So one is um, biofilm. One is, I don't know if a lot of people realize, like you were just saying, that there's even fungi that existed 
in the same microorganism as uh, the microbiome as bacteria. So if all of these are living there together, let's let's leave biofilm on the side for a second and just break down the bacteria and the um, the fungi. Some are good and some are bad. So what sets the two apart and what makes them activate to grow exponentially that they start causing health implications? Great question. So let me unpack a couple of things. Let's start first talk about biofilm and then we'll talk about fungi as well. So biofilms, okay. uh, vast majority of people have not heard this term, but they're all familiar with biofilms. The biofilm most people are familiar with is dental plaque. Plaque mm -hmm. is a biofilm. So all that's happening with a, a plaque is, and, and I'll just call them biofilms, but that's what I'm talking about. It's plaques is it's a collection of organisms that basically stick together to form a shield and the problem is not so much the plaque, it's what's going on underneath. It's literally, the analogy I always use is, everybody's seen that neighbor who doesn't take care of their pool and it's like 20% full and the water yeah. is gross. Uh -huh. And the only way to do anything is you gotta you know, scoop it out, clean it out. A biofilm is imagine those disgusting, you know, that water, but there's a pool cover over it and you cannot get through that pool cover to get to the organisms underneath. That's exactly what's going on. So when you have dental plaque, the germs underneath are affecting your gums, your, your teeth. That's why you need to remove the plaques to get to those. Mm -hmm. So that same dynamic, those biofilms, we call them digestive plaques, that's happening in your gut as well, the lining. So what happens is not only is this shield built and the organisms are growing underneath, but they actually start penetrating the epithelial lining. That's this idea of leaky gut. Um, so it really it can be highly impactful. So that's why you know, biofilms, um, it's something that, you know, people are aware of, but they, they just have not heard that term. But anywhere, like you'll get biofilms on uh, a couple common areas. One, uh, areas like the oral cavity, uh, obviously the digestive uh, tract as we were talking about, but then anytime a foreign substance comes in contact with the body, biofilms often will grow. So for example, dentures, that's why you need to clean dentures because a film, that sort of slimy film that will build up, catheters. My dad's done a ton of research uh, because of hospital-borne uh, infections is a huge problem. Like that, a lot of people will get more sick when they go to the hospital mm -hmm. because they'll pick up what are called nosocomial infections, hospital-borne infections. So one of the leading ones is when you get a catheter in, germs start building around it and building up biofilms. So breaking down those biofilms, you know, can be an issue. So, uh, so it's kind of it. like that um, debris you see on your uh, retainer. 100%. That's, it, it, uh, okay. Anytime you've seen sort of like that scummy film build yep. up, even mm -hmm. like, you know, if you've ever been at the beach and you're looking at the, the pillars, what are those called? Like uh, the, the pillars, the piers, the piers. Yeah. On a pier. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of the green, the green yep. sludge around it. That's biofilm. Mm -hmm. You know, So anytime germs just love building and essentially protecting themselves is what they're doing. So the biofilms that are inside our digestive tract, are they, is it like in a balloon shape? Is it a bubble or is it's it like one large one? It's like a film that just lines the-, the Okay. The, so just think of it as like just a sticky uh, layer that just, you know, uh, it, it's not, you know, like dental plaque can get physically hard. It's just a mm -hmm. different type of biofilm. Right. Think of this as just like a slimy uh, collection. And how important is it for us to be aware of this and to work on getting rid of it? Yeah, so the, the problem is, um, and this kind of leads to the second question you asked, like, well, what causes things to get out of whack? So we'll stick to the gut microbiome, but there's all sorts of microbiomes on our body, skin, hair, yeah. uh, you know, uh, digestive, vaginal, uh, oral. And in fact, my dad wrote a paper in 2010 identifying 101 native fungal organisms that live in our mouth. That's when he coined the term the microbiome, which is essentially the fungal uh, biome. So we have microbiomes all over our body. Usually when people are talking about it, they're talking about the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. So for our purposes, you know, we can talk about that. So the problem is it's, you're, you're, it's not just about getting just a good bacteria or getting rid of bad bacteria. In fact, Canada, which is a big boogeyman everybody talks about, mm -hmm. Canada is naturally occurring in 40 plus percent of people. And actually Canada can help with a number of functions like digestion, 
uh, absorption. The problem is the best analogy to think about is like a shark in the ocean. Shark is a very important part of the natural ecosystem, keeps you know the, the homeostasis of the entire population. You wouldn't want to get rid of it, but you wouldn't want to be a, in a pool alone with a shark. You know what I mean? The problem with, uh, and we'll stick with like fungal pathogenic organisms, like disease causing mm -hmm. organisms, like a candida, is the problem is if something happens to disrupt the homeostasis, they'll spiral out of control. So what can cause that? A few things. One, um, if something happens to uh, interrupt your immunity, so you become immunocompromised. So immunocompromised people will think, okay, well, cancer or HIV, but often it can be as like babies are immunocompromised. Their immune system still growing back to what we were talking about. Right. Uh, thrush, that's just, their systems are just not quite up to yet fighting off Canada. So it, it will, it will spiral out of control. The elderly can be immunocompromised. People who over-exercise really put strain on their body become immunocompromised. There's been interesting studies when uh, car accident victims, when their bodies are shocked into immuno, being immunocompromised, their microbiome is a total disaster. Why? Because again, they're, they're allowing their system uh, you know, to go out of whack. So anytime there's a real disruption that that causes essentially your body to get immunocompromised, one of the organisms, that's the problem with pathogenic organisms. They can really grow out of, out of whack, but you really don't want to get rid of them. The ideal microbiome has both, you know, good actors and bad actors. But I'll give you an example of why digestive health can be really tricky for people to navigate. So we have a gut test, the, the biome gut test. And uh, we test for both bacteria and fungi in the gut. So early on, we had this cohort of women that had terrible digestive issues, but they ate well, they looked like Lululemon models, like they exercised, they just, these are people who were taking care of themselves, but they would have very bad digestive issues. So when we tested their gut, we saw that they had an overgrowth of something called zygomycota, which is a very pathogenic fungi. Typically, my dad would only see it in severely immunocompromised people. So literally like cancer patients, HIV patients. But there were enough of these women that we thought that's like highly unlikely that they're just undiagnosed. So when we looked at their diet, what they were doing was these women were almost universally completely cutting out carbs, completely cutting out dairy. Now, that's something like low carb, you know, low dairy mm -hmm. or low dairy. We're kind of being told in, you know, our culture, especially in the wellness area, that these are good things to reduce or get rid of. The problem is they're very good uh, microbiome-friendly foods at proper levels, right? So guess what happened? By removing it, it really allowed this zygomycota to grow out of control. When they started to reintroduce dairy and, and carbs at low level, Zygomycota plummeted, right? So were there symptoms that they were all experiencing universally? Yeah, well, uh, I can't remember exactly off the, the top of my head which symptoms, but it was like your general digestive, like severe bloating, you know, uh, chronic diarrhea, things like that. So what were they eating? Because I'm also a carnivore coach, and um, I went carnivore for a couple years, a few, like hardcore carnivore for a few years, uh, more than a few years ago. Um, I'm now just animal based, but I felt great. The bloating was gone. The gas was gone. Um, you know, constipation and diarrhea are both a little bit of an issue in the beginning, but I'm curious about that. Right. So um, most of them were doing just heavy plant-based diet. Lean. Mm. Like they were, like I said, they were, they were eating like what you would assume would be an amazing diet. Now here you, you bring up something very important is it is not a one size fits all proposition. And the other is that many times people, cause it sounded like you, you said at first, there are some digestive issues. Yeah. They kind of went away. That's very normal. A lot of times when people start trying to eat, especially like a high you know, plant-based diet, or they try to like eat good, it, it, it sits terribly and they stop. The reason is the enzymes they need to actually break down lots of fruits and vegetables, things like that. They, they've just been neglecting for so long that it takes their body a few weeks to readjust. So that's very typical when you really change your diet that it, even for the better, it can really not feel great for a while. But to your point, like, okay, well, you know, if I'm on a carnivore diet, why don't I feel those things? 
it really depends. Like everybody is is truly different. So you may just be, but like the example I always give is everybody has that <laughs> uncle that hasn't been to the dentist in 10 years and has never mm-hmm. had a Right. And, and the aunt who goes every three months religiously and, you know, is constantly in, in a dental operating chair. It's just genetics sometimes, you know, you can absolutely. Very, yeah. You can just have very hardy genetics, like balanced microbiome. And then for a lot of people though, um, you know, we see in uh, our microbiome testing that it's very much an 80-20 rule for the vast majority of people that if you do most things you should be doing, it usually helps, but most of the time people are not doing what they're doing. So again, one of the, my favorite uh, analogies is we've all been stuck in traffic behind the guy on the carbon fiber bicycle, Lycra, you know, uh, mm-hmm. jersey, the amazing yeah. you know, aerodynamic hat, and the guy's 80 pounds overweight, right? And it's like, right. you don't need any of that equipment Right. You need to weight. Like right. you want to be more efficient and all these things. It's right. very much the same what we see in microbiome testing. A lot of times, you know, it, it's not people that, you know, these are people dealing dealing with pretty serious digestive issues. And it's not that they need a little inch of optimization. And, you know, why don't you introduce apple cider vinegar or something like that? Mm-hmm. They're eating fast food once a week. They're drinking a lot of alcohol. They're highly stressed. People underestimate. Yeah the impact of sleep, stress, things like that. And then the other is sometimes they have genetic genetic factors that they're just predisposed, you know, to, uh, you know, having an irritable stomach. Um, Yeah. So since we're here right now, um, I wanted to talk about what are the main drivers of poor gut health. And we're talking about nutrition um, right now. And, you know, uh, when people eat a lot of uh, vegetables, fruits and vegetables, they're also bringing, especially the vegetables they are bringing in a lot of anti-nutrients. So the lectins, the phytates and the oxalates. And that's why I became a carnivore coach because I, I don't think being a carnivore has to be lifelong, but I think it's a great tool to use to reset gut health, maybe for 30, 60, or even 90 days. Um, and I was wondering what your your company's thoughts were on anti-nutrients. And I know in your probiotic, you also add in amylase, which is a digestive enzyme to break down those starches, but what are your thoughts on all of the anti-nutrients? So you're, you're talking about like uh, just- Lectins, the, yeah. yeah. Lectins and like kind of out of the- uh, Grains um, and legumes, beans. Yeah. Like these can yeah. be highly, um, you know, have such a high negative impact for a lot of people's gut health. Um, so, so I think honestly, we take a middle of the road view, which is basically, you got to see what works for you or what doesn't. That's, yeah. that's a lot of it. Like people, honestly, a lot of this really does come down to owning your own health and understanding there is not a silver bullet. What a microbiome testing, uh, and before I get into that, one thing that I always, always emphasize is I don't care if it's a probiotic multivitamin, whatever it is, a dietary supplement should be a supplement to what you're doing with your diet. It really, Absolutely. You, you, you're not going to use a product and, uh, uh, and, and will away, uh, you know, your, or optimize your health and wellness if you're not taking. Absolutely. So I think that's really important, but I do think dietary supplements can be a great tool in the health belt. If you're doing all the other things you should be doing, including not just your diet, exercise, stress and sleep are, are two critical factors we mm-hmm. see a lot of people candidly just ignore that you're, you're not going to have great health uh, and wellness if you're ignoring those. Microbiome testing is a very useful tool, but it, but it's a tool. It, it's an insight. Like for example, that zygomycota, mm-hmm. these women would just not have been aware of that, right? Now that doesn't mean that you automatically know this is what's going to work for you to deal with that. You, you, then you, it's a little bit of trial and error. The problem usually for di- uh, for digestive health issues is that it's it's very frustrating. It's very hard to for a lot of people to pinpoint what is causing their digestive health issues. As we said, you know, uh, briefly, it, there's a number of factors. It can be genetic, diet, alcohol, you know, lifestyle. These are the the vast majority of mm-hmm. of gut health issues but it's hard to know which one to isolate. So people go on these, like, we, we've seen it all, like people I'm that sure. and honestly, you feel very, very bad for people because um, usually the person who comes to buy them, 
they're they well aware of probiotics. We're not convincing someone that probiotics are something they should, they, they've been trying to figure out a solution. They're uncomfortable. They deal with the, like serious bloating or, you know, a lot of people say like, I, I literally, it's, it's life altering to me. I don't feel comfortable eating out or I want to always know where the bathroom is. Like it, it's, it's very tough road. So what we hope to allow people to do is, is has insights that then they can sort of target their journey to figure out what's driving their digestive issues and then hopefully relieve them somewhat. You know, that that's always the goal. So for your test that your gut test that you offer, what's the data going to come back and tell someone, do, do you say, this is what's unhealthy in your gut. This is what's going on. Here's a picture of a live picture of what's going on. And here's what we suggest. And then also your company only, you only offer one probiotic, correct? Or are there various uh, ones? We have a few different ones. So, so to your first question, um, when we first launched a test, we thought, oh, this is great. You know, we'll give people all this information. It'll be super useful. And what we saw was that it was data overload that people didn't know mm. how to utilize. And this is like 2017-ish. Yeah. So really now the way we've designed it over the last number of years is uh, it's like a credit report for your gut. So we have a gut score. Mm. And we, because a lot of people just want to understand like, how, what does my gut look at mm -hmm. from 10,000 feet? So we give them a gut score. But then we give them more detail and we show them all these various organs. We don't show them, like if it's in your gut, we, we, it will show up in our testing. But a lot of the organisms are not actually useful to know about. Like they're either from the tacos you ate last night before you took the test, they're transient mm -hmm. organisms, like they're not really gonna stay or they, there's little known about their health impact. So mm -hmm. we report about 60 organisms that we know there's a lot of science around their um, correlation to health and wellness. And then we show you the average where you stand and whether they're uh, essentially good or bad organisms. Once we get past that, then we have some specific recommendations around diet, uh, around lifestyle, and we use machine learning to make sure these are all customized recommendations. We used to do it manually. We have a team of nutritionists that would go through everyone. Mm -hmm. Based off, you know, doing thousands and thousands of these, we were able to build an algorithm that can predict. So for example, if someone needs more omega-3s, but they're a vegan, we're not going to recommend that they get more fish in their diet as this, you know, simple example. Right. So we go through dietary recommendations, lifestyle recommendations around their, and 95% of it is around stress and sleep. And then we will have product uh, recommendations. It's not just our products. Like we recommend, you know, best in class products from other companies that can, we just don't make products like that. Like there's a couple of Metagenics products we really like that we include as an example. Oh, I like that. I did not know you did that. Yeah. 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 Like yeah, that's great. We, we really take an agnostic view to it. It's mm, like, that's obviously great. we'd love for you to buy our products, but like, right. you know, we really want to make sure. Uh, and we, we have a nutrition team that's completely independent to make their decision. We buy uh, those off of full script or Emerson if mm -hmm. you them, and then we supply them. So, um, yeah, it's, it's agnostic to whether it's our products or, or not. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, when you take the test, it's not essentially like a product recommendation engine. It's here are your recommendations. You may not need to take any products. Um, it, it could be data, diet driven or lifestyle driven. Like my dad always talks about this one lady who was just beside herself and came up to him at a conference. She ended up taking the test because she was like, I'm doing everything right. I don't understand. I just don't feel well. And we found out that she was just exceedingly stressed, but she was just not looking at that as an aspect. And it was like eye opening for her when my dad's like, you know, honestly, I think that's what's going on with this. People just don't think that something like, how stressed you are can really impact it. And what's funny is it's not just like work stress. Um, some of the people we've seen with the most severe digestive issues, they're like bodybuilders or MMA fighters. Like they're putting their bodies under extreme stress. You yeah. know, so it's sometimes what we think we help do is allow people to take a step back and see like, what are the various factors in, in their life that can be impacting, you know, their digestive health. 
I think stress is a great topic to talk about because first of all, we're just out of the pandemic and stress was at an all-time high and still is. People are still recovering from that. Still, People still have a hard time leaving their home to go into you know, a social setting and travel. Um, so there's that psychological component and then there's the emotional stress and then there's the physiological. I know that I work with a lot of menopausal women and you mentioned early in the podcast about over-exercising. Well, there are, you know, menopausal women, especially if they're not taking hormone replacement therapy or bioidenticals, they often gain, we gain weight around our midsection and it's, you know, it's not fun and we can't get rid of it. And that causes so much stress that a lot of women go to over-exercise and they don't realize that that is a stressor that they're putting on their body that is also um, triggering that gut inflammation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny, my dad wrote a paper that was published on the link between uh, depression, the microbiome mm -hmm. and COVID. And, uh, you know, people just don't realize how much, you know, th that there's a big link. Actually, he just uh, he now has an ongoing column with psychology today about the gut brain axis, because there's such yeah. a tie between the two. And, you know, we've, we've done some really interesting work, um, you know, in different areas of, you know, neurological ties to the microbiome. We did a big clinical trial on autism. Um, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of work in, in stress. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's probably the most exciting area of the microbiome, but one thing I always caution people with the microbiome is we're in the early innings here. It's like yeah. cancer research in the 60s. Like clearly cancers, you know, we're starting to understand it, but there's a lot of research to do that will start to understand like, you know, how to really hone in chemotherapy, all these kind of things. Same with the microbiome. There's a lot of things that are interesting correlations. Mm -hmm. Now the question is, is there causation? I'll give you a simple example. There's a lot of data now around the tie between autism and the microbiome. Mm -hmm. Now, the real question is, is autism impacting the microbiome? Is microbiome impacting autism? Is it the diet of an mm -hmm. autistic child? Autistic children can be very picky with their diet. And it's often foods that are not necessarily gut friendly. Right. So 70% of autistic children deal with pretty serious digestive issues. So is it a, a, just a side effect of the food they're eating? It's not actually tied to autism. These are things that over the next, you know, 20, 30 years, we'll really start to understand. But yeah. I really caution people to not take anything they see with a full grain, you know, um, I, I grew up abroad. So sometimes I try and use these analogies like a full grain of salt, which is not the mm -hmm. right wording. Uh -huh. <laughs> but like, you get what I'm saying? Like, yes, very like trust, but verify when you're reading things like anybody tells you like, oh yeah, this is the cause of that. You know, we, we just don't believe that. Yeah. We think it's an important aspect, but. Absolutely. I just got done recording a podcast with a, um, an expert in the ADHD field and she's a holistic ADHD, uh, leader. And I have five children and a few of them have ADHD. They're all grown now, but when they were younger, I remember taking them to the doctor to get diagnosed with ADHD. And not once did a doctor um, help me understand the importance of gut health and the type of diet that they should be on. It was something that I, because of the space I'm in, I was able to figure a lot of that out on my own, but it is so important because as soon as you change their diet, you see how that gut brain connection really works. And all of a sudden there, you have your child back and it's really incredible. Yeah. It, 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 it's one of the frustrating parts of medicine is, you know, on the one hand, it's very good that we take our time adopting new treatments mm -hmm. and drugs because, you know, the safety efficacy, there's all mm -hmm. sorts of, you know, going back decades, thalidomide and all sorts of examples of, you know, if, if it's not a thorough process, you can, you know, uh, drugs and pharmaceuticals and treatments can be very dangerous. The, the negative is that sometimes when some something really does have potential, it can take a long time. And, and it can be viewed very skeptically by, you know, uh, traditional medicine. So uh, microbiome, easy example of that is uh, fecal transplant. Mm. The, the first doctors doing that, which uh, should I kind of explain what that is? Yeah, that'd be great. So fecal transplant is literally taking feces, you know, poo from one person mm -hmm. who's healthy 
and transplanting it in into another like often you know they'll take a a capsule or they'll there's all sorts of ways but they'll get right. that person's feces in, into you they sterilize it they do all sorts of things to get rid of the pathogens make sure there's no disease all, all those things but what they're really trying to isolate is their microbiome and transplant it into your microbiome and there are so many unbelievable stories of people whose lives are transformed yeah. you know uh you know debilitating digestive issues that just go away after these transplants and then interesting case studies of people that uh, got transplants and they got it from someone who's healthy but obese and then they started having weight issues yeah. after they got the transplant so again er, we're in early days but the initial physicians that were really trailblazing this were completely castigated that this was like you know completely fringe that they should you know get their medical license pulled all these things and now it's looking like that could be one of the leading right. uh therapeutic you know outcomes what's going to be interesting is there's now a big fight around should it be regulated as a drug who should have the right to do this you know so it's it's going to be really um, sadly, obviously, a lot of this gets mired in politics as well as actually what's you know best for you know the science. But going back to the original point, yeah, the, the, even Canada's role, Canada as you know a disease or is causing issues for people not just in their digestive health but in, you know all over their bodies was really looked as fringe as as late as you know the early two thousands. It's only now yeah. that you know, main quote unquote mainstream uh, scientific publications are really embracing that. Yeah, fungi is playing this outsized role, but I cannot tell you how many times after we really got in, in the industry, people would write my dad and say, I knew fungi had something to do the, with this because I would have digestive issues and I would take a drug because I had toenail uh, fungus mm -hmm. and my digestive issues would go away. Mm. And, and they would tell their doctor and their doctor would be like, uh, psychosomatic, you know? And it's like, no, they were actually using an antifungal that was controlling what was going on in, in the GI be, by trying to get rid of the toenail fungus. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's, uh, it's really fascinating. And there's a couple of guys out there like, uh, Doug Kaufman's been talking forever about fungi's role in our health and wellness. And, you know, obviously my dad on, on, you know, the NIH funded side of things. So yeah, it's, it's just, I think we're going to see over the next decade, fungi is really going to just increase in prominence as far as, you know, our health and wellness. One uh, area that is really interesting is there's this new strain of Canada auris uh, where it's so like fungi has typically not been drug resistant. It, it's really not been an issue, but there's been a Canada emerge called Canada auris out of first identified in Japan that not only is it drug resistant, but it's literally like killing people. It's shutting down hospitals. And CDC said it's one of the most, you know, sort of scary emerging diseases out there. So my dad's actually doing a lot of research on the pharma side uh, in Canada Aura. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, are there fungal super bugs that start really emerging that we've not had to deal with previously? Wow, that's kind of scary, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about antibiotics and its role that they play on the gut? I, when I have someone, a, a client go on an antibiotic, I make sure they are on a good probiotic with the right strains that aren't going to interfere with the medication because sometimes we need that Western medication. Sometimes an antibiotic is absolutely necessary, right? But we want to make sure we're not destroying the gut because I once heard that every time you take an antibiotic, it sets your gut health back about six months. Yeah. So first, I think you said a critical thing is uh, I was at a conference one time and this woman did a talk called basically don't let your wellness get in the way of your wellness. And she told a story about how she basically ignored her body telling her like, you're not well, but did not want to see, uh, you know, a Western medicine doctor. Mm -hmm. By the time she got there, it was pretty, you know, advanced cancer. And so you it, it is completely understandable why people want to be more thoughtful about taking antibiotics, other drugs, unless it's absolutely necessary, but sometimes it is actually necessary. Mm -hmm. So, um, antibiotics, 100%, like their, their function is to destroy the bacteria. Again, the problem is by doing that, you kill not just the bad, but the good, the good thing is, and we're actually doing some interesting research on this internally there's a growing list of what are called narrow spectrum antibiotics that are only going after the organism 
that they're trying to kill. It's not like, you know, a nuclear bomb in, in your mm. system. That's going to really be the wave of, of where things are going. But you're completely right. The, the, the area that people, it's not just on the probiotic side we talk about, but if you're taking an antibiotic, you really need to be thinking about uh, prebiotics and really continue to build the system because uh, you know, prebiotics, which is essentially a fancy word for dietary fiber. Mm-hmm. It, it's really just like the top soil in your gut. It, it lowers the pH. It makes it really friendly for probiotics to grow like the seeds. You know, my dad always talks about your gut as a garden, like good topsoil. So the seeds, you know, can grow into like beautiful flowers. So, you know, the second you're, you're taking an antibiotic, you really should be getting prebiotic laden foods, even, even a supplement potentially, to, to really foster that ideal microbiome environment as well. Yeah, that's what I do. I always mix a prebiotic supplement with a probiotic supplement um, when they're taking an antibiotic. But what are your thoughts on peptides? Because we're talking about um, all these things that are coming down the pipeline that are going to be more standardized, hopefully in the next 10, 15 years. Peptides is a area uh, that's really fascinating to me. And there's a lot of peptides that do work on gut health. One of them is BPC-157. I was wondering if you and your dad have started looking at um, at, at the side of gut health. You know, it's funny. Um, so part of the problem is there are so many interesting areas to really delve into that you, you, you can't do everything. Right, you can't do it all. So uh, peptides, we really have not looked into. Really, our biggest emerging area is postbiotics. That's where we're spending mm. a lot of our time. So what a postbiotic is, is if you think of a probiotic as like a grape, um, there's two types of postbiotics. One, if you squeeze the grape, all the juice comes out, like essentially the metabolite of the probiotic, that is is very efficacious. The other is if you actually take the probiotic and you kill it, you heat kill it, that remaining sort of cell structure also seems to have very nice activity. So what's nice about those uh, a postbiotic versus a probiotic is postbiotics are very easy to mix into foods, to uh, bake, to put into you know drinks. So they're very easy to formulate with because you don't have to worry about keeping them alive, or if you put them in, you know you don't have to worry about it uh, basically them blooming. So we're putting a lot of uh, research emphasis uh, internally into developing postbiotics. Hmm. Uh, I, I think over the next five years, you're going to see really probiotics start to give way to postbiotics as the leading, you know, microbiome ingredients. So this will be like an ingredient that food manufacturers can start utilizing in their end product. A hundred percent because. Oh, that's so cool. I never heard of that. Yeah. Because probiotics are very hard to formulate with foods. There are, you know, some yeah. mostly. Uh, spore based that you know people have been able to formulate with, but it's still you know it's somewhat limited. So um, yeah, the, we're very excited. You know, we're working on applications in hair, skin, uh, as well as digestive health as well with postbiotics because you, you know you can put them in everything from gummies to lotions to um, like the problem with you know uh, you'll see a lot of things that are labeled like probiotic skincare. I'm always wary of anything that says that because. Yeah, lotions need to have preservatives of some sort because you don't want bad bacteria, bad fungi growing in you know the skincare product. So as a result, quite naturally, they, it's something that will likely kill a probiotic. So so uh, this is something I would always caution people: read read the label, see like is it actually a probiotic? Like is it alive at time of manufacturing versus time that you're actually using the product? Um, a lot of times, you know, it's, it's kind of questionable claims that a lot of people make, especially hundred percent. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, spore based and that is one type of probiotic that I, that I recommend a lot. It depends on the, the person obviously, but can you talk to, um, the listeners about what a spore based probiotic is and is the biome health probiotic a spore based? Yeah, so we are not spore-based. So basically, um, just with any, uh, when we talk about probiotics or good germs, bad germs, even when we talk about like L-acidophilus, a, a specific type of probiotic, mm-hmm. that's just the species. There's then, you know, sometimes depending on the species, dozens, if not hundreds of strains of L-acidophilus that you will have varying levels of efficacy. So 
spore base is just a, a, a different, I, I, I forget the technical difference as far as they basically, it has like a shell that allows it to be way more hardy um, when it's being formulated with. The problem is, uh, not problem, but like one of the things early on with spores was that um, there was some concern with like contamination, uh, you know, those sorts of things, but there's some very good spore ingredients out there. We've not used spores, uh, not because of a philosophical difference. It's just candidly, the strains we developed were just not spore strains and we were mm -hmm. very interested on the fungal side. So, um, but even when you talk about spores, there's, you know, dozens of different right. spores. There's, you know, even bacillus coagulans, there's, you know, several, uh, you know, science-backed uh, BC brands, there, uh, BC strains. There's ones that are, you know, not really much science around them. The, the main, um, I don't care what the strain is or the species, the few things I always tell people they should be considering when they're looking at probiotic is one, what is the sourcing? Like, where are they coming from? Is, is it fermented in the US? Is it fermented abroad? Uh, there are some very good strains that are fermented abroad, but I do think it adds an extra layer of scrutiny, like understanding like where, like what, what is the actual source of these? Um, the other thing is how are they stored? That's really critical mm -hmm. because one day, if a strain is not alive, it's useless, right? Um, and then uh, the other is what is the actual science behind the strain you're looking at? Like, have they done clinicals? How big are the clinicals? Are the clinicals on exactly what you're using? And more importantly, are you using it at the dose that the clinical was performed at? You know, so it can be uh, understandably very frustrating for consumers because there's a, it, it's very confusing. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I was actually, one of my questions to ask you was there's just a, a sea or a wall of probiotics in the fridge, on the shelf. And how are people supposed to know if they're not working with a functional medicine doctor, a practitioner, or a health coach like myself, how are they supposed to know what to go get? Yeah, it, honestly, it, it's the most fair question of all because it, it's very difficult to tell. It's like people, you know, Trader Joe's has two options of peanut butter versus, you know, like a, a, a mega grocery store. And people just want two choices. They don't want right. 80 choices, right? right. So. Um, I think the reality is that um, it depends on what you are using the probiotic for. Um, I personally feel that you really should look to what, what is the scientific rigor of the company that's selling you this product? Like you, you need to understand that, you know, there, there is, I cannot tell you, especially now with so many supplements being uh, bought and sold on like Amazon, Yeah, it is not difficult to launch a probiotic uh, product. It's it's like you and I could do it tomorrow. It, right. It, but the the challenge with that is you. It's very difficult to tell quality. So you have to stick to very high fidelity scientific back brands. You you have to really understand the science. I, I do think it's a good idea to get a recommendation from a practitioner or a coach uh, or you yeah. know a physician, someone who can tell you you know guide you. That's, you know, again, going back to what we try to do, that's uh, why when we're looking at your microbiome, we're trying to help you figure that out, you know? So right. it, but we understand like it can, it's not like a, if you want a vitamin C supplement, you can kind of just take a vitamin C supplement. Like they're all, you know, going to be generally the same. Uh, probiotics, you know, admittedly can be challenging area to uh, navigate. Not, like what we found is when we, we survey our customers and we say, well, why did you, you know, because usually, you know, as I said, these are people already using probiotic. Well, well, why would you trade from that, you know, to buy them? So, well, because I, you know, your dad's an active researcher. He's funded by the NIH. I just trust the science. Right. And so that that's, you know, one of the things we always say is you, it, it, you really should do a little bit of homework to figure out who's behind this and, and what's it actually meant to do. Absolutely. What about CFUs? What does that mean? And what does that number mean for people who are shopping around for a probiotic? Yeah, great question. So CFU means colony forming unit. And so early on in the industry, it was sort of viewed as a way to figure out uh, it, how many usually billions of CFUs or germs are in this product. The problem is it's become associated that the more CFUs, the better. 
I generally think it's actually one of the less helpful things. I think over time, you're going to see that go away on packaging because the industry is realizing it's really not helping the consumer and it's not really informative. It doesn't mean anything because you can have a hundred billion CFUs of a very low quality probiotic that's dead by the time you're actually using it. Because even if it's live, when you take it, if, if it's not live, when it gets into your, your GI, it really right. doesn't matter. Right. So, you know, again, what, uh, like our highest CFU is 30 billion. Why? Because when we were designing and doing our clinicals, we found like, that's about as much as you need. You really don't need more. Um, it would have been easy to pack, you know, 60 billion, hundred, whatever, but it, it just didn't make sense, honestly. So, uh, look at actually what is the science that is backing this CFU amount. Um, it, it, it's an okay general guide. Like you, you really shouldn't see something with a below a billion CFUs. Like there's this thing in the supplement industry uh, that people call like pixie dusting, where you'll see a product and you're like, oh, it has this in it. But the reality is it, it, it's very minute amounts of that ingredient is actually in the product. Right, right. So it's not at a level that's functionally going to do anything. Yep. So, um, you know, you'll see things like with probiotics and when you look and it's like 100 million CFUs, that's not a lot, you know? So honestly, anything in the range of one to on the upper side, like I would say probably 30 billion is gonna be, you know, in, in a reasonable range. Well beyond that, like I would wanna see the science, like why do you need this many CFUs? The other thing is like, you'll see, sometimes capsules with 25 different strains. Again, I would want to know like, well, why do you have so many strains? Right. Like, what functionality of all this ver versus just being able to tell someone, oh, it has 25 strains. You know what I mean? Like that, unfortunately, that's a little bit of the power of marketing. Yeah, what's really interesting about your probiotic that differs from all the other probiotics I've seen is that you add in a digestive enzyme, you add in amylase. And I thought that was a really um, interesting um, add-in from your company because at the same time that we're having these digestive enzymes and wanting to take the probiotics, we also have to think about the side of how well is our gut's ability to break down the right. molecules of the food that we're bringing in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the other thing people don't realize is that amylase actually is very good at breaking down biofilms. So what we mm. found when we combined it with the strains, it was a very nice synergistic effect in breaking down biofilms. So yeah, I personally think enzymes are another area that are really yeah. underutilized. Um, and what's nice is they're pretty uh, cost efficient. They're, you can get really good quality enzymes for pretty cheap. Um, so yeah, no, when we were designing it, like th that, that goes back to kind of we're agnostic about the science. It, we wanted the best ingredients when we saw amylase really made a difference, we, you know, added in the formula. Yeah. Especially being a carnivore coach and um, seeing that, that community and people transitioning to carnivore. So many times people come to it and they say, I, and also women going through menopause, they want to do everything naturally. Well, you know what? We all need a little bit of help, right? Because naturally means depending on the food that we're eating and the food that we're eating isn't grown that well anymore, right? It's right. not the same as it was when our ancestors were eating. And so we have a lot of other issues going on um, layered on top of digestive issues. And so I always want to recommend a really good probiotic as well as a digestive enzyme. And especially for for the, if people are using the carnivore diet as sort of a, a gut reset tool for a short-term time, you know, there's all, and you were talking about this earlier in the podcast, when people are switching their diets, there's always this very uncomfortable transition period yeah. that people go through because your, your gut is getting used to a different way of breaking down nutrients, absorbing them and getting them into your system. Um, so I think that it's always a great idea to pair a digestive enzyme with a probiotic. And um, so I love that the amylase is in there. I want to, before we end, I want to talk about hair loss. I work with a ton of women that experience hair loss, especially during perimenopause and menopause, um, including myself. I've been on my own journey for over 20 years. And there's a lot of different reasons why hair loss can occur. There's genetic, there's micronutrient deficiencies, but gut health is always at the core and there's no magic bullet to grow hair. It's, it's definitely a multi-layered approach. And so what have you found at Biome Health, um, any correlations between gut health and healthy hair growth? Well, it's interesting. We've actually examined it, not so much in the correlation between gut health itself and, and 
uh, hair health and hair growth, but actually looking at the hair microbiome itself, essentially the scalp's microbiome. Mm. What we found is that, um, and, and people, many people don't realize this, that your skin has a microbiome, as I mentioned earlier, your hair has a microbiome too, your scalp. And fungi actually has a distinct role of, of being a major player in your hair's uh, health. And so again, but you said a really critical thing. There's so many factors. As an example, my daughter, we actually, I have a six-year-old daughter. Her hair is not that long. So we took her you know, to the doctor and she has this thing called loose antigen syndrome where basically healthy hair is, but they just uh, loose. And they're like, she might grow up, she might not. I think the problem with, uh, hair specifically is that it is hugely multifactorial. There's so many different um, areas. So again, the, the main ties though are going to be really uh, variations on a theme of what we've been talking about. Especially if you're immunocompromised and your GI is out of balance and your microbiome's out of balance, that's going to have impact on various uh, areas. It's going to impact the ability of your hair and your scalp's microbiome to be healthy. Why? Because these organisms will flex up and down. It, that the, it, if you have biofilms, it's starting to uh, interfere. As I as I said, with like the integrity of like the scalp strength, things like that. So again, mm -hmm. it, it always comes down to: uh, Are you doing things to maintain the health? So what does that mean? Especially, um, and and this is I I have not seen research on this, but to me, it's honestly pretty. Uh, you know, sort of obvious you know yeah logical flow I think mm -hmm. about that is women especially with things like hair coloring there's a lot of like stripping of of the hair you know and and a lot of sort of very strong you know conditioners things like that anything you're doing that's stripping the natural environment of your hair of the scalp it, it will have an impact you know so it, it it's it's really analogous to you know, there's more and more evidence that the fact that we keep our houses so clean, hand sanitizers is actually not healthy for us. So, so a lot of health correlation, when you look at people who have companion animals that come in and out of the house, households are much healthier. Why? Because they're bringing organisms mm -hmm. in. We used to get our hands in the soil. We used to do all these things that were constantly challenging our system. So it's really no different with, uh, you know, the hair's natural microbiome, but also the tie to the GI. Now, one interesting thing, have you seen this research about low-dose minoxidil? Yes. Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. You know, it's, uh, um, I think, it, it, again, this is what I love about science. You have an ingredient like that that's been, now it's so old, it's off patent. And they do low-dose oral, oral dosing, and they're seeing unbelievable results. You know I, I mean? take it. I take yeah. it. My uh, one of my children, who's a young man, he takes it too. It's it's an incredible drug. But at the same time, the here so here we are with the Western medication that is very helpful, beneficial, safe, and effective. But at the same time, if you don't have that healthy lifestyle, that healthy foundation, that that balanced uh, working functioning gut health, you can't support the medication no, that you're bringing 100%. in. Hundred percent. Look. look. The best example, the be there's no better example is antacids, okay? The reason the vast majority of people need an antacid is not because they have either a genetic predisposition to uh, over acid pr production. Mm -hmm. they, they just don't eat well. They're, right. Or they're eating late and, and what they're doing is they're using medicine to tamp down the acid. That is not good. Acid is actually very protective. Again, right. it's, a lot of this is marketing where we've kind of been marketed to that, oh, acids, it's acid. It's not healthy. It's, you got to keep it under control. That literally acid protects us. It, it's the reason, you know, we don't all drop dead of foodborne pathogens because vast majority of time when they get into the acid, they're killed, right? Like the right. It literally is protecting us. So when you're constantly taking an antacid, what you're doing is you're retarding the ability of the acid to really take, uh, uh, things in, in, into control and tamp down these pathogenic organisms. So what you're doing, you're reducing the acid that allows, uh, your, uh, microbiome to really grow out of whack, but you keep doing it because you want to eat pizza at 11 PM at right. night, not feel it in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? Right. So, but someone who, and I've met these people who have genuine acid reflux issues that I don't remember the name, like, but like, essentially they're like, 
diaphragm sphincter does not work well. GERD. Yeah, like true GERD. Mm -hmm. These drugs are lifesavers for them, you know? So you should not be using a drug or a medication to patch over a lifestyle behavior is essentially honestly what it comes yep. down to with any of this stuff. Yeah. I have, um, I have some family members who take PPIs and I say, well, how about if I help you address the root cause? And they say, no, I can just eat what I want and take the PPI and I'm totally fine. And so, you know, at that point you just can't do anything about it. It's just a mindset. You, 100%. And you know what? It is very uncomfortable to change the mindset and change the activity behind the mindset. There is going to be an uncomfortable period of that transition, right? It's, you know, you, you're going to be uncomfortable eating different foods or feeling uncomfortable while you're trying to lower your dose of the PPI or get off the antacids. Yeah. Like the last thing I'd say is, uh, I think the problem is we've kind of been uh, hoodwinked into thinking that you have to have motivation to make changes. You got to keep up motivation. And the reality is that's impossible. We're, we're not robots. Everybody has a bad day, doesn't feel like doing something. I think the difference is if you want to see lasting change, you have to do the thing you're supposed to do despite not feeling like doing it. Whether it's right. exercise, eating right, it really doesn't matter. It's not about uh, motivation. It's really about just, you know, uh, making sure your future self is going to be happy with what you're doing right now and doing it regardless, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So we're coming to an end and I wanted to um, ask you about your gut health quiz on your website oh. and then um, offer three things listeners can do starting today to support gut health. Yeah. So uh, what you're referring on the quiz site is guttesting.com. This is one of my favorite pet projects. So I had seen a bunch of, uh, you know, online health quiz companies that were absolutely, absolutely crushing it. But when you looked at what was driving the quiz logic, it was very flimsy or no science. Like when they were telling you to take a quiz to figure out what was going on with your health, there was really, you know, it's kind of like a, a BuzzFeed type quiz. There was nothing really behind them. So the challenge when you do microbiome tests, it's not like a pregnancy test where you take it, it's very cheap and you get instant results, basically. Microbiome tests, you know, not cheap. It takes a few weeks to get your results. You got to take the time to go through a report. It's involved, right? So I challenged our data science team. I said, look, we have millions of microbiome data points at this point. Are we able to predict based on just answering questions is someone's statistically likely to have an imbalanced gut or candidate overgrowth? So mm -hmm. they went, they looked, and what we found is we found 15 factors that sure enough, um, they were able to help us predict if someone was likely to have an imbalanced gut or a uh, uh, overgrowth. candida overgrowth. And so we launched that. The idea was that, uh, you know, you could do it in a two minute quiz format and it's done fabulously well for us. And people love it because it really does that in, give that instant gratification and, uh, you know, shows people what, you know, is potentially at least as an initial thought, do, should I even mm -hmm. look at this is, is, uh, you know, are, are there factors that are contributing to me likely to have a GI issue? Because by the way, sometimes it's not, it's funny. We used to actually have a dedicated Canada test and we got rid of it. Do you know why? Mm -mm. Our number one complaint was you told me I don't have Canada and I know I have Canada. And we're like, hmm. no, it's a test. Like we're not, you know what I mean? Like it actually right. benefits us if you do have Canada, but we're, you know, it, it so, um, for people, sometimes, you know, when you go on Dr. Google or whatever, like you mm -hmm. get it's easy to get convinced that what you're experiencing is due to X, Y, and Z. So right. go with guttesting.com is to give people a really quick litmus test to tell, you know, is, is their microbiome potentially, you know, what's at stake? And then they can do further exp exploration from there. Oh, I love that. I'm going to, I will add that to our show notes for sure and send people there. Okay. So last question, what are three things the listeners can do starting today to support their gut health? Okay. Really start to manage your stress. I cannot yeah. emphasize that enough. You, it's, it's a factor that is, if not the leading factor, it's one of the leading factors and it's the number one uh, dismissed factor that people ignore when it comes to feeling better with digestive health. And it's actually pretty logical. Like everybody's had like a big meeting or something. And then all of a sudden their tummy feels a little runny. It's 
you're you're under stress. Like it, it, right. it's a lot of these things. People are actually aware of this. They just they haven't framed it like that. So one is manage your stress. Two, start to think about how you can introduce prebiotics into your diet, dietary fiber. It, it is so uh, underutilized and it's really critical. So I, I would say that's number two. And then three, uh, really, really, really read labels. When you're looking mm -hmm. at products you're going to use or foods, like take a minute to really look at what are you ingesting? Like it's even, I bought a product from one of my favorite retailers who will remain, remain unnamed. And it was like a shrimp salad thing, which is, seems pretty straightforward to me. Mm -hmm. When I looked at, I could not believe how many chemicals were in this thing. And I'm mm -hmm. not, you know, I'm not one of these people that thinks just because something's got a chemical, it's bad. But mm -hmm. when I'm buying shrimp, I'm not honestly expecting mm -hmm. to find chemicals. Like, so right. then buy it, you know? So it's things like that where you, you got to be responsible for, for your own health, especially with so many things going on. So, you know, the good thing is there's good regulations of what you must put on label. Like take the time and, and really look at it. Th that Those would be the three things. Like stress, those are, yeah, those are great. Yeah, those are great. And with the label one, most women look at the numbers first. They look at the nutrition facts label. They don't look at the ingredients and I help them reverse that. Always read the ingredients because if the ingredients are bad, it doesn't even matter who cares what the numbers are, especially when we're talking about all these you know, healthy, like keto, quote unquote, keto foods. And, you know, when you look at the ingredient list, it's, it, it shouldn't be a keto food, but the numbers say that it should. So I think that is great advice. Well, Afif, thank you so much for joining me on the Health Trip Podcast. And I'm really excited to um, share with my listeners all this information on gut health, because it is the number one place. It is where I start, no matter why someone comes to me, it's always comes down to gut health. And so where can people find your products? Uh, so easiest place is biomehealth.com, which is B as in boy, I-O-H-M, health.com. And uh, we're on all the major social channels too, uh, also biomehealth. And they can do the gut test at, you know, gut uh, the gut quiz at guttesting.com. Awesome. Great. I will put all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much again. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.